On the morning of August 2, 2006, Robert and Kathy Wan attended the gym in Oakton, Virginia before riding the metro into D.C. for work, much like they did every day. It was a scorching 99 degrees in D.C. that day. Robert was a few weeks into his new job as the general counsel of Radio Free Asia, and Kathy worked at the American Health Law Association. When they departed, the pair had no idea that would be the last time they would see each other, as 32-year-old Robert was brutally murdered later that night under circumstances that are still unknown. An alleged intruder enters a DuPont Circle area townhouse and the only guest in the home, Robert, is murdered. He was stabbed once in the chest, once in the pancreas, and a final time in the heart, killing him in minutes. That's the story Robert's longtime friend Joseph Price and two other housemates want you to believe, but my co-host Amanda and I aren't convinced one bit. I'm Michelle A. Graham. And I'm Amanda Washington. We're Black, millennial, woman freelance reporters, and we're producing this podcast on our own. We'll be covering crime, murder, and mystery in the DMV region. Welcome to the point of no return. Before we dig into the details of this crime, it's worthy to note that the activities surrounding Robert Wan's death are explicit and not suitable for all audiences. Please proceed with caution. When Brooklyn native Robert Wan stepped foot onto William & Mary's campus for a college tour in the 1990s, he had no idea his then tour guide Joseph Price would be one of the last people to see him alive. Robert and Joseph became lifetime friends over their shared interests in helping others, politics, and the legal system. The pair even rekindled the 13 Club while in college, a club made for dishing out random acts of kindness. Sharing many mutual friends, Robert and Joseph maintained a relationship even after college. Joseph even attended Robert and Kathy's wedding in 2003. Joseph and his housemate, Victor, even hosted Robert's 30th birthday party at their home. Because of this connection, Robert felt more than comfortable asking his longtime friend for a place to crash when he had to work late in D.C. on August 2, 2006. Robert arrived at Joseph's house, and in less than 79 minutes, he was dead. Hi, Point of No Return family. We've been studying this case for about a month, about a month now, excuse me. Um, and it has just really been a bizarre, wild roller coaster that has honestly, um, would you say has kept us up sometimes? I would definitely say that. So I'm just gonna jump right in and start with the crime and how um, this all kind of went down. So Robert, who is the victim of our story, his body was found on a pullout bed undisturbed. And by undisturbed, I mean, it appeared to paramedics that Robert's body was placed on top of the sheets where he was found. Ready for bed, Robert was wearing a gray William & Mary t-shirt gym shorts, and a mouth guard designed to keep him from grinding his teeth when he goes to sleep. He was discovered with three fatal stab wounds to the chest area, one in the middle of his upper chest, the second stab wound in the middle of his chest vertically, and the final stab wound to his heart. His autopsy concluded that the wounds were about four to five inches in depth and had no drag marks. The stab wounds were described as perfect slit-like defects with each wound being inflicted at exactly the same angle. The alleged murder weapon was found next to Robert's lifeless body. 
a five and a half inch kitchen knife. So Michelle, imagine being stabbed. Would you be able to stand still if a knife was coming in your direction? Absolutely not. I think my first reaction would be to try to move out the way, defend myself, something. Something that would have left some sort of scratch or mark on my body. Exactly. The stab wounds on Robert's body were so perfect, it appeared Robert didn't move at all while being stabbed. No defensive wounds on his hands or forearms were present whatsoever. Because of the places Robert was stabbed, the medical examiner said in this case, the pain would have been so intolerable, it would have been extremely impossible for Robert not to move when being stabbed. Therefore, he had to have been physically incapacitated while he was attacked. He was also found with over 10 premortem needle puncture marks found on his neck, feet, chest, and left hand, meaning he may have been injected with something prior to his death, causing him to be incapacitated or even paralyzed. Robert's stab wounds also led a significant amount of internal bleeding, according to the medical examiner. Robert's stomach and intestines were filled with blood, indicating his blood had time to travel into his digestive tract, meaning he may have still been alive for some time after being stabbed. Hemorrhages consistent with a type of strangulation were also found in Robert's eyes. All of the bones in his neck were intact and no ligature marks or bruises appeared. The medical examiner explained this type of hemorrhage could only come from suffocating someone with an object such as a pillow. It's also important to note that while this sounds like a gruesome crime scene based off of the stabbing alone, barely any blood was found when paramedics arrived. One paramedic described Robert's body as being stabbed, showered, redressed, and placed in the bed. Okay, so Robert's murder took place in a $1.2 million three-story row house located at 1509 Swan Street in Northwest DC. The vibrant DuPont Circle neighborhood was known to be peaceful and quiet for the most part, even on the night of Robert's death. When police entered 1509 Swan Street after Robert's murder, the expensive home still appeared to be very neat and orderly. Joseph, Robert's longtime college friend we mentioned earlier, moved into the home in 2005 with his housemates, Victor Zaborski, Dylan Ward, and Sarah Morgan. Sarah wasn't at home the night of Robert's murder, but the other three housemates were present. Joseph, Victor, and Dylan claimed that an intruder entered the home and killed Robert, leaving behind expensive things like large flat screen TVs, electronics, and other items that you would think an intruder would want to steal. So let's go back to breaking down the crime scene some more. What's most interesting about the guest room Robert was staying in is that it was located on the second floor. In order to get to his room, you had to pass the first room on that floor, which was occupied by Dylan. Joseph and Victor stayed on the third floor, and Sarah occupied the basement unit. So if an intruder entered the home, why would they pass Dylan's room and go straight to the guest room Robert was staying in? As Mandy told you earlier, Robert's body was found in an undisturbed state, and so were his surroundings, much like the rest of the home. His wallet, Movado watch, and Blackberry all laid on the nightstand next to his body, untouched. The clothes he wore earlier that day were perfectly folded and placed on a table at the end of the bed. The sheets on the bed were folded down at a 45 degree angle and the pillow had one single indentation from Robert's head, indicating that there was no way any violent struggle could have taken place in that exact spot. Two softball sized spots of blood were also found on the sheets. 
There was also the kitchen knife found near Robert's body that the medical examiner later said was too big to be the murder weapon. It was staged, and the real murder weapon has still never been found. Outside of these minor details, the room and the rest of the home were found in almost perfect condition. Nothing was stolen, missing, or out of place. There was also no forced entry. Typically with cases like this, you might find a back door left open, or a random boot print in the kitchen, or a chip wall maybe, but there was none of that at all. Let's retract what we know to be some of Robert's last moments before his murder. Robert called his wife one last time at 9.30 p.m., and that was the last time she would ever hear his voice. We've already established that Robert was spending the night at Joseph's house, his college buddy of roughly 13 years. While we've had a pretty clear picture of what Robert was doing prior to getting to Joseph's house, it's important to note that only the residents of 1509 Swan Street know exactly what happened to Robert in the last 79 minutes or so of his life. At 9.30 p.m., Robert called his wife, telling her he had just wrapped up the class he took. He was heading to his job at Radio Free Asia to meet the night shift staff. By 9.40 p.m., he was meeting with the night shift staff. At 10.24 p.m., Robert called Joseph, and we're assuming he was telling him that he would be arriving shortly. This is honestly where the timeline becomes sticky. In our research, we found the distance from Radio Free Asia to 1509 Swan Street was only nine minutes tops if you get in a taxi. It was late, so we figured Robert wouldn't walk. And the metro was out of the question because there's only one stop in the area of both addresses. If we factor in Robert leaving his desk to get in the taxi and arrive at 1509 Swan Street, we can say his commute may have been roughly 15 minutes or less, putting him at Joseph's house no later than 10.40 p.m. Many publications claim Robert was there for 79 minutes. However, we don't know that timeline to be fact. I actually think it may have been more so about 69 minutes when you really break down the timeline. When Robert arrived, Joseph's housemate, Victor, already retreated to bed for the night. Joseph and other housemate, Dylan, welcomed Robert into the home. They had a quick glass of water before showing Robert where he would sleep for the night. At 11 o'clock p.m., all men get ready for bed. Dylan says he took a sleeping pill and read a book for a bit before falling asleep. Dylan also mentions hearing Robert taking a shower in the bathroom down the hall. It's a hot August night, and Joseph has asked everyone to keep their doors closed to maximize the air conditioning. Minutes later, at 11.05 and 11.07 p.m., Robert's Blackberry has two emails drafted. One to his wife, Kathy, saying he had just showered and was about to go to sleep, and another confirming a work lunch for the next day. However, these emails were never sent and were recovered as drafts. This also may have been staged by someone trying to establish a false timeline. Since Robert had phoned his wife at least twice that night already, why would he send her an email checking in to say that he was going to bed? It seems a little odd to me. Anyway, next door neighbor William Thomas, who shares a wall with 1509 Swan Street, hears a loud scream sometime between 11 o'clock p.m. and 11.30 p.m. He remembers this time because he was watching the 11 o'clock nightly news. At an unknown time in the 11 o'clock hour, Joseph and Victor claimed they were awakened by the back door alarm chime. Both men said they assumed the chime was coming from the basement tenant, Sarah, returning home, even though she said she wouldn't be at home that night. They claim they hear three breathy screams and get nervous. 
They run to Robert's room only to find him stabbed to death. At approximately 11.49 p.m., Victor calls 911 in a panic. He mentions details of what the crime scene looked like and Robert's current condition. Do you need police, fire, or ambulance? What's wrong, ma'am? We had someone that was in our house, evidently, and they stabbed somebody. Okay, somebody's inside the house now? I don't know. We heard... Are they bleeding? You see someone yes. bleeding? Someone is bleeding in our house. Okay, where are they bleeding from? Uh, I think he's... I think in the stomach. In the stomach? Is he cautious? Uh, Calm down for me. I'm going to send some help, okay? Female or male? It's a male. He's a friend of ours. He was, spent, he was spending the night with us. Okay, and who was the person that stabbed him? Do you know? Is he, is, is he conscious? We need an ambulance. Ma'am, listen to me. He's not conscious. He's not conscious at all? No. We need someone right now. Is he breathing? Listen, is he, listen to me. Calm down. I'm going to help you, okay? Is he breathing? I'm upstairs, and he's downstairs. I don't know. Okay, who's downstairs with him? My partner is downstairs with him right now. He told me to go upstairs and call the police immediately. Okay, who's the person? Okay, I'm sending paramedics and the police. Okay, who's the person that stabbed him? I don't know. We think it's somebody with an intruder in the house. We heard the chime of the door. And it's 15, ma'am, calm down. 1509 Swan Street, Northwest, am I correct? Yes, it is. The person that stabbed him, is he still in the home? I don't know. We got help in route, okay? Pardon me? We have help in route. Thank you. Okay. They are there route to you now. I'm saying the police and the paramedics, okay, to assist. Okay, so I need you to do is go downstairs, okay? Yeah, you heard that correctly. Victor referred to Joseph as his partner. They were in a polyamorous relationship with Dylan. According to an affidavit, the three-way relationship also included a dominant-submissive sexual relationship exclusively with Dylan in the dominant role and Joseph in the submissive role. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, why haven't they mentioned this sooner? It's because every single piece of news coverage Mandy and I found on Robert's murder starts with the intimate relationship between Joseph, Victor, and Dylan. We wanted to tell a different story here that gave an unbiased view on the facts of the case as we know them, outside of anyone's sexual orientation. Okay, so <laughs> I told y'all at the beginning of this episode that this case is a roller coaster. It is literally gonna have your head spinning. But now I have so many thoughts and questions at this point, Mish. Like, was Robert in on the throuple and then that's why they tried to kill him? Or like, did the housemates assault Robert? Or did they drug him? Was there even an intruder at all? Honey, who was screaming when the neighbors heard it? What's happening here? How did they kill Robert and potentially clean his body in the crime scene in under 79 minutes? And why Robert? He was Joseph's friend for over a decade. So we have murder, BDSM, sexual assault, and a lot of unanswered questions of what happened at 1509 Swan Street on August 2nd, 2006. 
We'll be digging into more details about this mysterious case on the next episode of The Point of No Return. <clears throat> Before we head out, I want to give y'all some insight into who we really are. Mandy and I wanted to create something meaningful with longevity. We met in graduate school four years ago at American University. Mandy was studying multimedia journalism and I was on the investigative reporting track. While our friendship grew, so did our interest in working with each other to create this podcast you're listening to, The Point of No Return. We're both obsessed with murder, cold cases, mysteries, crime, you name it. But above all, we're passionate about telling people's stories and keeping hope alive for the voices that have been silenced. Being able to produce this podcast independently was also a goal of ours. We wanted to give you guys the raw, uncut version of ourselves as storytellers and as Black women. As we continue to share our findings, research, and stories, we invite you to connect with us. Want to tell us about a case in the DMV? Click the link in our bio and follow us on Instagram at the point of no return pod and on Twitter at T-P-O-N-R podcast. Until next time, y'all. Hashtag murder with Mandy and Mish. For real, for real, help us out with a hashtag because I don't know what that was. But y'all, y'all heard all three of the M's together. Okay. All right. Bye, y'all.